What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he is the father of all who believe, but have not been circumcised, in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is then also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing, and the promise is worthless, because the law brings wrath, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited him as righteousness. The words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Mark. And uh, from me, happy birthday to you, brother, for tomorrow. Um, if you're uh, uh, tuning in and uh, you haven't met me before, my name is Ben. I'm uh, one of the pastors here at Sevac uh, Anglican Churches. Uh, a warm welcome to you if you're uh, visiting, so to speak. Uh, in uh, just a moment, I'm going to uh, uh, bring that wonderful part of uh, uh, God's Word in Romans to us. Uh, however, if you're someone who's downloaded the outline and you're an outline person, please be aware that... Um, 
the fourth point uh, is something you can just cross out. I'm not going to get there. Uh, I'm perpetuating that classic rumour that Anglicans can only manage a three-point sermon uh, this morning. Uh, so, yeah, sorry about that. Uh, second of all, there will be a question time, uh, as has been our practice as of late. And uh, sooner or later, the number that you can text your questions to will come up on the screen. Uh, let me pray briefly. Please keep your Bibles open and we'll uh, get stuck into Romans 4. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, for this day where we can uh, gather in virtual uh, to uh, read and consider your word. We pray that you'd work powerfully in us by your spirit to convict us of the truths that you would have us learn uh, and that on account of that process, we would glorify Jesus all the more. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Throughout history... Christians have often struggled to understand the role of the Old Testament in the life of a believer. At the extremes, every now and then, you hear of a pastor saying, we don't need the Old Testament at all, or that the God of the Old Testament is the angry, vengeful God, but in the New Testament, he shows himself to be the loving, forgiving God. If you come in a little bit from those patently false extremes... We know that all Scripture is there for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training us in righteousness, 2 Timothy 3.16. But that's true of all Scripture, so it doesn't help us get more specific about the role of the Old Testament. We might say that the Old Testament provides us with the history and the theological background to Jesus and the Gospel. And that would be absolutely right. But if it's only kind of the support act for the main show, then in what sense is it still the living and active Word of God? Coming in a bit closer still, we might say that the Old Testament makes us conscious of sin and shows us our great need to depend on Jesus for salvation. Again, absolutely true. I mean, we saw that in uh, Romans 3. But if that is the only major function of the Old Testament, it's still partially pointless because the New Testament also shows us our total depravity and our great need for the forgiveness won by Christ. This morning, I hope we can all put another firm stake in the ground of our theology, that we can have a clear and sufficient understanding of the role of the Old Testament And that's not a misplaced hope because in Romans chapter 4, the Apostle Paul tells us of a major and wonderful and motivating and inspiring purpose of the Old Testament Scriptures. Last week, we looked at what are arguably the most important words ever written, chapter 3, verse 21 through 26, where we learn that the righteousness of God, God's righteousness has been made available through faith in Jesus Christ. God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement, showing himself to be just in that he's punishing sin, but also merciful in that he can now declare sinners to be justified on the basis of Jesus' sacrifice. But at both ends of that wonderful passage of Scripture, Paul claims that the Old Testament Scriptures affirm the notion that sinners are not saved by doing good works, but simply by faith in Jesus. So Romans 3.21, what we were looking at last week, 
But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. So, the law and the prophets, which is basically the whole Old Testament, testifies to the righteousness of God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And then, at the end of that section, after Paul makes the point that there can be no such thing as a holier-than-thou Christian, for we are all sinners justified by God's free gift, he finishes that passage with, Romans 3.31, do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all, rather we uphold the law. You see, somehow the Old Testament not only convicts us of sin, but also it teaches us about the righteousness of God that is accessed by faith in Jesus. How does that happen? How does this process take place? Well, that's what the Apostle Paul shows us in chapter 4 by referring primarily to the life of Abraham. Abraham's life bears testimony to the notion that God saves people not by our good works or obedience to God's law, but simply by faith. So I hope you've got it there and you can read along with me. Chapter 4 and verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. As I'm sure most of you will know, Abraham is held in high esteem by God's people Israel. And if he had been declared righteous in the sight of God on account of doing good things or being a good person, then he'd have the bragging rights. Though, of course, not before God, because no one can brag in front of God. But did Abraham have the bragging rights? Well, verse 3. What does the Old Testament Scripture say? It says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So it wasn't about anything he did, but about what and who he believed. And the act of believing itself is not what made Abraham righteous. God had to credit Abraham with righteousness and he chose to do so on account of Abraham's belief. Being declared righteous because you believe or trust or, or have faith in something is the opposite to being declared righteous because you do some kind of good works. And so verse 4, now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift but as an obligation. You don't thank your boss for his or her profound and kind, generous gift of choosing to pay you for your week of work. You deserve the payment because you've done the work, you, you, you've contracted. It's an obligation, it's not a gift. If they don't pay you, you could legitimately take them to court. But a payment is totally different to a gift. So verse 5, however, to the one who does not work but trusts, God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Being declared righteous in the sight of God is not about being a good person who does good things. It's about being a sinful person 
who gets the gift, the free gift of forgiveness, of being declared righteous by trusting God. The first five books of the Old Testament are often referred to as the law. But it's not only in the law, those first five books, that we learn about God's righteousness being given through faith. Paul says it's the law and the prophets, basically the whole of the Old Testament, in which we find testimonials to salvation through faith alone. So, having looked at a bit of the law, let's now look at a prophet. Verse 6, David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. It's not that David wasn't sinful, I mean, we all know about Bathsheba and Uriah, but being someone who trusted in God, God chose not to count David's sin against him. God therefore credited or counted David with, with righteousness by forgiving and covering over his sin. When it comes to the teaching that we're saved not by our good works, but by trusting in God to give us the free gift of his perfect righteousness. The Old Testament could really be called the Old Testimonials. Time and again, throughout both the law and the prophets, we learn that God's righteousness is given as a gift to people who depend upon him. However, both Abraham and David were part of God's chosen people, Israel. They were Jews. So, along with much of the church at the time of the New Testament, it could be easy to think that one needs to be a Jew to be under the law of Moses in order to receive the perfect righteousness of God through faith. Now, I recognise that in our day and age, we have the opposite problem. For people who know that I'm a Christian, sometimes when I tell them I'm Jewish, they correct me. They say, you mean, Ben, that you were a Jew? To our 21st century minds, becoming a Christian means you're renouncing Judaism. You're no longer a Jew, you're a Christian. But the truth is the opposite. The Bible considers it natural for a Jew to do what his religion has always told him to do, to put his trust in Jesus the Messiah. A Jew remains a Jew when he becomes a follower of Jesus. In fact, there was a period in history where the only Christians in existence were exclusively Jewish. It's the Gentile, the non-Jew, who needs to renounce his or her paganism in order to unnaturally become a follower of Jesus. That's why it's quite understandable that in the early church, many Jews were under the impression that a Gentile had to become a Jew in order to be saved. If he was a male, he needed to be circumcised, showing that he's under God's law in order to then come to faith in Christ. This is a huge issue in the New Testament 
And now that you know about it, as you go back and read your New Testament, you'll suddenly realise it comes up all over the place. But even the idea that you need to become a Jew in order to be saved gets shown to be false from the Old Testament. The life of Abraham makes it clear that there's no need to be a Jew in order to receive the righteousness of God by faith. Verse 9, is this blessedness only for the circumcised, asks Paul, or also for the uncircumcised? Well, we've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness, check. Verse 10, under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had, past tense, by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. God himself chose to credit Abraham with righteousness before he gave him the covenant that involves circumcision. That makes Abraham the father of the faith, not only with those from Israel, but from all nations of the world. Hence, if you're a follower of Jesus, whether Jew or Gentile, you're right to sing, as we did in our kids' church this morning. Father Abraham had many kids. I am one of them, so are you, through faith in Jesus Christ. It's not Father Abraham had many kids, Uh, I am one of them, so are you, through being circumcised and coming under the law of Moses and then putting my faith in Jesus Christ. That would be a terrible song anyway. Furthermore, even being a Jew by itself is not what gives you the righteousness of God. We've seen this before in chapter 2, we're going to see it again here. It's being a Jew who trusts in God for righteousness that counts. Hence the next verse, verse 12 And he is then also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. A Jew who does not accept Jesus as Lord and Saviour has not trusted God and has therefore not received God's righteousness. Jews, like all people, need to turn in repentance and faith to Jesus Christ for salvation. And it's natural for a Jew to turn to Christ for salvation. So please pray for more Jews to come into their own gathering, the church of Jesus, in which Gentiles are now also included. Now, even though our polite culture can struggle with it, it's a good and caring teacher who is someone who will uphold the positive and also condemn the negative in order to make their point. Getting the notion that salvation is by faith alone is so important that Paul needs to go on to identify and condemn a false teaching when it comes to this subject. So verse 13, he now says, It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be the heir of the world but through the righteousness that comes by faith. Hopefully you remember, God gave Abram the great promise in Genesis chapter 12 that basically determined the direction of world history, that through him, 
the world would find blessing rather than its deserved cursing. Abraham simply trusted God's word to make his name great, to give him a great land and to make him a great nation and to bring blessing to all the world. And he relied on God's power and ability to make those things happen despite the impossible human odds. Abram had no law to obey when God made those great promises. All he had was trust or faith. So verse 14, for if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith faith means nothing and the, the promise is worthless because the law brings wrath and where there is no law, there is no transgression. To put it another way, the promises that define the people of Israel in relation to God, which would affect the rest of the world, were believed in and acted upon in a context whereby legalistic righteousness or unrighteousness could not even exist. And that had to be the case because if God's kind promises would only come to fulfilment if his people were righteous, then the whole thing would fail because, hello, we're all sinners. Blessing to the world, which includes our being saved, could never be guaranteed unless it rested 100% on the reliable person and work of God as opposed to the unreliableness of sinful humanity hence verse 16 therefore the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring not only to those who are of the law but also those who have the faith of Abraham he is the father of us all as it is written I have made you a father of many nations he is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that we're not now I own an iPhone, as many people do. Uh, It comes with some sort of guarantee that's written on paper that I probably haven't looked at. Uh, The guarantee is if things go wrong with this phone, I can take it to an Apple certified repairer and get it fixed or get a new one, provided, you know, I haven't just like jumped up and down on it or something silly. But that guarantee is only ever as good as the company, as Apple with whom I've had a few gripes as of late. If Apple goes bust and ceases to exist, then my guarantee counts for nothing. There's no one I can bring my phone to. There's no company. But if God gives a guarantee, then it's as eternal and unchangeable as God is. If his promise means life from the dead, which Paul has just said, to those who trust in him, then it's guaranteed for eternity. If my salvation depends on me performing well enough, being good enough to gain God's favour, then it can never be guaranteed. I might go bust. I can never know how well I will perform. But God gave his promise to bless Abraham and all those who would follow in his footsteps of faith in a context whereby human performance wasn't even on the table. Blessing was received not by obedience, but by trust. And so it is with us today. And friends, I think it is so important for us to understand the irreconcilable difference between what the Bible teaches here and the official teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. And I've chosen my words carefully here. Notice I'm not talking about people, but the official teachings 
of Roman Catholicism. The Latin word canon refers to a ruling, a standard or a measure by which other things can be judged. At the Catholic Council of Trent that took place between 1545 and 1563, a very important ruling, a canon, was made that this part of the Bible is quite concerned with. Canon 9 of the Council of Trent reads, If anyone saith that by faith alone the impious, i.e. the sinner, is justified, in such wise as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to the obtaining the grace of justification and that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the movement of his own will, let him be anathema, which is a way of saying let him be accursed or condemned. Put simply, the Catholic Church teaches that if you reckon that God counts sinners as being righteous on the basis of faith alone, if you reckon that God justifies people without them needing to make some sort of contribution of good works or good attitude, then basically you're a heretic. On this issue, the teaching of Catholicism stands directly opposed to what the Apostle Paul made clear and stood for. It is directly opposed to what our father Abraham made clear and stood for. It is directly opposed to what the great King David made clear and stood for. On this issue, the official teaching of Roman Catholicism rejects the testimony of the law and the prophets, as well as rejecting the testimony of the Apostle Paul, and therefore, altogether, it rejects the Word of God. If you happen to be Catholic and you're listening in today, then I thank God that you've tuned in and it is my absolute pleasure and delight to assure you that God himself says you can be relieved of a huge burden. If you trust in Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, then the God of all eternity counts you as being absolutely 100% righteous in his sight. He will never count your sins against you. He has covered them over completely by the blood of Jesus that was shed for you once and for all. Your baptism, your first Holy Communion, your attendance or non-attendance at weekly Mass, your Our Fathers and Hail Marys and Confessions, the guilt that you may or may not feel on account of your failure to live up to the moral standards you should abide by, absolutely none of those things whatsoever are required for you to be completely saved and justified, declared righteous in the sight of the holy God. By itself, your faith in Jesus means you're forgiven for all sins, past, present and future, and are welcomed into God's true church as one of his children. It may be that the teachings of Catholicism have resulted in you feeling weighed down by so many burdens of religious and moral requirement, or guilt because you've sort of left it all behind, but you feel a bit wrong. But Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I've been a follower of Jesus for about 20 years now, and I can testify that it is just so good to have the complete certainty that I'll be in heaven with God for all eternity. I have the perfect assurance, the God-given guarantee that nothing can separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus because my righteousness doesn't come from me. It's God's declaration and God's work of which I'm a beneficiary. My living in obedience to Christ, which I certainly don't always get right, is not done in the hope that I'll be good enough for God to accept me. No. My living in obedience to Christ is powerfully motivated by the fact that God has already accepted me and forgiven me and credited me with righteousness. Not on the basis of anything I've done, but because Jesus Christ has shed his blood to pay for my sin and rose for my justification. This is the case for all who have faith in Jesus, for all who trust Jesus as their saviour and therefore as their Lord. And that we are justified by faith alone has always been the testimony that God has given in Scripture from the first page to the last. Like Billy Joel says, it has always been a matter of trust. It is absolutely true and vitally important that God's Old Testament law makes us conscious of sin. But, as we've seen from the Apostle Paul today, it's also true and vitally important that God's Old Testament law and the prophets teaches us that the righteousness of God comes to anyone through faith in Jesus. By way of implication then, when we read our Old Testaments, we're right to be assuming that it helps us grow in our faith. That is, our dependence upon the God who can do the impossible. We're right to ask the question, what aspect, what feature of the person and work of Jesus Christ does this Old Testament text teach me about? We're right to ask the question, how does this reveal and convict me of my sinfulness? And of course, we are also right to ask the question, how does this show me the trustworthiness of God such that I'm encouraged to keep trusting in him, to grow in my faith? But of course, the other big implication is to make sure you've got the guarantee of being completely righteous in the sight of the holy God. You don't get that by being a good or a religious person. You get that by turning to Christ in repentance and faith. If you're not sure how to do that, then when you click on that link on the CVAC online website that says, I'm here today, be sure to write down something like, I want to be made righteous in God's sight, please tell me how to do that and one of us will be in contact with you shortly.